0: by Peter Spensky, read by Alice Flanagan, Chapter Two, as already stated, Kant propounded the problem, but gave no solution of it, nor did he point the way to a solution and not one of the known commentators, interpreters, followers, or adversaries of Kant found a solution, nor the way to it. I find the first flashes of a right understanding of the Kantian problem and the first suggestions in regard to a possible way towards its solution in the writings of C. H. Hinton, author of the books A New Era of Thought and The Fourth Dimension. These books contain interesting synopses of many things previously written about problems of higher dimension, together with ideas of the author's own, which have a bearing upon the subject under discussion here. Hinton notes that in commenting on Kantian ideas, Only the negative side is usually insisted upon, namely, the fact that we cognize things in a sensuous way, in terms of space and time only, is regarded as an obstacle, hindering us from seeing what things in themselves really are, preventing the possibility of cognizing them as they are, imposing upon them that which is not inherent in them, shutting them off from us. But, says Hinton, if we take Kant's statement simply as it is, not seeing in the spatial conception a hindrance to right receptivity, that we apprehend things by means of space, then it is equally allowable to consider our space sense not as a negative condition hindering our perception of the world, but as a positive means by which the mind grasps experiences, i.e. by which we cognize the world. There is, in so many books in which the subject is treated, a certain air of despondency, as if this space apprehension were a kind of veil which shut us off from nature. But there is no need to adopt this feeling. The first postulate of this book is full of recognition of the fact that it is by means of space that we apprehend what is. Space is the instrument of the mind. Very often a statement which seems to be very deep and obtruse and hard to grasp is simply the form into which deep thinkers have thrown a very simple and practical observation. And for the present, let us look on Kant's great doctrine of space from a practical point of view. And it comes to this, it is important to develop the space sense, for it is the means by which we think about real things. Now according to Kant, Hinton goes on to say, the space sense, or the intuition of space, is the most fundamental power of the mind. But I do not find anywhere a systematic and thoroughgoing education of the space sense. It is left to be organised by accident, yet the special development of the space sense makes us acquainted with a whole series of new conceptions. Fitch, Schelling, Hegel have developed certain tendencies and have written remarkable books, but the true successors of Kant are Gauss and Lobachevsky. For if our intuition of space is the means whereby we apprehend, then it follows that there may be different kinds of intuitions of space. Who can tell what the absolute space intuition is? This intuition of space must be coloured, so to speak, by the conditions of physical activity of the being which uses it. By a remarkable analysis, the great geometers above mentioned have shown that space is not limited as ordinary experience would seem to inform us, but that we are quite capable of conceiving different kinds of space. And that is asterisked. Mr. Spensky does not quote authors verbatim as a rule, but sometimes condenses, sometimes develops their thoughts. A comparison of pages 2, 3 and 4 of Hinton's book with the quotation will indicate this method. And that quote was from A New Era of Thought. Spensky continues. Hinton invented a complicated system for the education and development of the space sense by means of exercises with groups of cubes of different colours. The books above mentioned are devoted to the exposition of this system. In my opinion, Hinton's exercises are interesting from a theoretical standpoint, but they are practically valuable only for such as have the same turn of mind as Hinton's own. Exercises of the mind according to his system must first of all lead to the development of the ability to imagine objects, not as the eye sees them, i.e. in perspective, but as they are geometrically to learn to imagine the cube, for example, simultaneously from all sides. Moreover, such a development of the imagination as overcomes the illusions of perspective results in the expansion of the limits of consciousness, thus creating new conceptions and augmenting the faculty for perceiving analogies. Kant established the fact that the development of knowledge under the existing conditions of receptivity will not bring us any closer to things in themselves. But Hinton asserts that it is possible, if desired, to change the very conditions of receptivity, and thus to approach the true substance of things. And Spensky quotes, Our space as we ordinarily think of it is conceived as limited, not in extent, but in a certain way which can only be realised when we think of our ways of measuring space objects. It is found that there are only three independent directions in which a body can be measured, It must have height, length and breadth. But it is no more than three dimensions. If any other measurement be taken in it, this new measurement will be found to be compounded of the old measurements. It is impossible to find a point in the body which could not be arrived at by traveling in combinations of three directions already taken. But why should space be limited to three independent directions? Geometers have found that there is no reason why bodies which we can measure should be thus limited. As a matter of fact, all bodies which we can measure are thus limited. So we come to this conclusion, that the space which we use for conceiving ordinary objects in the world is limited to three dimensions. But it might be possible for there to be beings living in the world such that they conceive a space of four dimensions. It is possible to say a great deal about space of higher dimensions than our own, and to work out analytically many problems which suggest themselves. But can we conceive four-dimensional space in the same way in which we conceive our own space? Can we think of a body in four dimensions as a unit having properties in the same way as we think of a body having a definite shape in space with which we are familiar? There is really no more difficulty in conceiving four-dimensional shapes when we go about it in the right way than in conceiving the idea of solid shapes, nor is there any mystery at all about it. When the faculty to apprehend in four dimensions is acquired, or rather when it is brought into consciousness for it exists in everyone in imperfect form, a new horizon opens. The mind acquires a development of power, and in this use of ampler space as a mode of thought, a path is opened by using that very truth which, when first stated by Kant, seemed to close the mind within such vast limits." our perception is subject to the condition of being in space. But space is not limited, as we at first think. The next step after having formed this power of conception in ampler space is to investigate nature and see what phenomena are to be explained by four-dimensional relations. The thought of past ages has used the conception of a three-dimensional space and by that means has classified many phenomena and obtained rules for dealing with matters of great practical utility. The path which opens immediately before us in the future is that of applying the conception of four-dimensional space to the phenomena of nature, and investigating what can be found out by this new means of apprehension. For development of knowledge, it is necessary to separate the self-elements, i.e. the personal element which we put in everything cognized by us, from that which is cognized, in order that our attention may be distracted upon ourselves from the properties which we, in substance, perceive. Only by getting rid of the self-elements in our receptivity do we put ourselves in a position in which we can propound sensible questions. Only by getting rid of the notion of a circular motion of the sun around the earth, i.e. around us, self-element, do we prepare our way to study the sun as it really is. But the worst about the self-element is that its presence is never dreamed of until it is got rid of. In order to understand what the self-element in our receptivity means, imagine ourselves to be translated suddenly to another part of the universe, and to find their intelligent beings and to hold conversations with them. If we told them that we came from this world, and were to describe the sun to them, saying that it was a bright, hot body which moved around us, they would reply, You have told us something about the sun, but you have also told us something about yourselves. Therefore, desiring to tell something about the sun, we shall first of all get rid of the self-element which is introduced into our knowledge of the sun by the movement of the earth upon which we are, round it. One of our serious pieces of work will be to rid of the self-elements in the knowledge of the arrangement of objects. The relations of our universe or our space with regard to the wider universe of four-dimensional space are altogether undetermined. The real relationship will require a great deal of study to apprehend, and when apprehended will seem as natural to us as the position of the Earth among the other planets seems to us now. I would divide studies of arrangement into two classes those which create the faculty of arrangement, and those which use it and exercise it. Mathematics exercises it, but I do not think it creates it, and unfortunately, in mathematics, as it is now often taught, the pupil is launched into a vast system of symbols. The whole use and meaning of symbols, namely as means to acquire a clear grasp of facts, is lost to him. Of the possible units which serve for the study of arrangement, I take the cube, and I have found that whenever I took any other unit, I got wrong, puzzled, and lost my way. With the cube, one does not get along very fast, but everything is perfectly obvious and simple, and builds up into a whole of which every part is evident. Our work, then, will be this. A study, by means of cubes, of the facts of arrangement, and the process of learning will be an active one of actually putting up the cubes, Thus we will bring our minds into contact with nature. And this was quoted from a new era of thought. And espensky's asterisk this as well. The entire quotation is compiled by Mr espensky conveying Hinton's ideas and omitting all non-essentials. And espensky continues. I shall return again to Hinton's book several times, but meanwhile it is necessary to establish our relation to the ideas which Kant's problem touches. What is space? Taken as object, that is, perceived by our consciousness, space is for us the form of the universe, or the form of the matter in the universe. Space possesses an infinite extension in all directions, but it can be measured in only three directions independent of one another, in length, breadth and height. These directions we call the dimensions of space, and we say that our space has three dimensions. It is three-dimensional. By independent direction, we mean, in this case, a line at right angles to one another. Our geometry, or the science of measurement of the Earth or matter in space, knows only three such lines, which are mutually at right angles to one another and not parallel among themselves. Should we mean, by independent direction, the line which is not at right angles, i.e. which does not form with the others an angle of 90 degrees, but an angle, say, of 30 degrees, then we would have a number of dimensions, not three, but nine. It is seen from this that the three-dimensionality of our space is simply a geometrical condition, and depends upon the fact that we are using right angles as a unit of measurement. But at the same time, in our space and our universe, we know only three perpendiculars, i.e. only three independent right angles. But why three only, and not ten or fifteen? This is what we do not know. And here is another very significant fact, either because of some mysterious property of the universe or because of some mental limitation, we cannot even imagine to ourselves more than three independent directions. But we speak of the universe as infinite and because of the first condition of infinity is infinity is in all directions and in all possible relations, so we must presuppose in space an infinite number of dimensions. That is, we must presuppose an infinite number of lines perpendicular and not parallel to each other, and yet out of these lines we know, for some reason, only three. It is usually in such guise that the question of higher dimensionality appears to the normal human consciousness. Since we cannot construct more than three mutually independent perpendiculars, and if the three-dimensionality of our space is conditional upon this, we are forced to admit the indubitable fact of the limitedness of our space in relation to geometrical possibilities. Though of course, if the properties of space are created by some limitation of consciousness, then the limitedness lies in ourselves. No matter what this limitedness depends on, it is a fact that it exists. A given point can be the vertex of only eight independent tetrahedrons. Through a given point it is possible to draw only three perpendicular and not parallel straight lines. Upon this as a basis, we define the dimensionality of space by the number of lines it is possible to draw in it which are mutually at right angles with one another. The line upon which there cannot be a perpendicular, that is, another line, constitutes linear, or one-dimensional space. Upon the surface, two perpendiculars are possible. This is superficial, or two-dimensional space. In space, three perpendiculars are possible. This is solid, or three-dimensional space. The idea of the fourth dimension arose from the assumption that in addition to three dimensions known to our geometry, there exists still a fourth, for some reason unknown and inaccessible to us, i.e., that in addition to the three known to us, a mysterious fourth perpendicular is possible. This assumption is practically founded on the consideration that there are things and phenomena in the world undoubtedly really existing, but quite incommensurable in terms of length, breadth and thickness, and lying, as it were, outside of three-dimensional space. By really existing, we understand that which produces definite action, which possesses certain functions, which appears to be the cause of something else. That which does not exist, cannot produce any action, has no function, cannot be a cause. But there are different modes of existence. There is physical existence, recognised by certain sorts of actions and functions, and there is metaphysical existence, recognized by its actions and its functions. A house exists, and the idea of good and evil exists, but they do not exist in like manner. One and the same method of proof of existence does not suffice for the proof of the existence of a house, and for the proof of the existence of an idea. A house is a physical fact, and an idea is a metaphysical fact. Physical and metaphysical facts exist, but they exist differently. In order to prove the idea of a division into good and evil, i.e. a metaphysical fact, I have only to prove its possibility. This is already sufficiently established. But if I should prove that a house, i.e. a physical fact, may exist, it does not mean at all that it really exists. If I prove that a man may own a house, it is no proof that he owns it. Our relation to an idea and to a house are quite different. It is possible by a certain effort to destroy a house, to burn, to wreck it. The house will cease to exist. But suppose you attempt to destroy, by an effort, an idea. The more you try to contest, argue, refute, ridicule, the more the idea is likely to spread, grow, strengthen. And contrarywise, silence, oblivion, non-action, non-resistance will exterminate or in any case will weaken the idea. Silence, oblivion, will not wreck a house, will not hurt a stone. It is clear that the existence of a house and that of an idea are quite different existences. Of such different existences we know very many. A book exists, and also the contents of a book. Notes exist, and so does the music that the notes combine to make. A coin exists, and so does the purchasing value of a coin. A word exists, and the energy which it contains. We discern on one hand a whole series of physical facts, and on the other hand, a series of metaphysical facts. As facts of the first kind exist, so also do facts of the second kind exist, but differently. From the usual positivist point of view, it will all seem naive in the highest degree to speak of the purchasing value of a coin separately from the coin, of the energy of a word separately from the word, and the contents of a book separately from the book, and so on. We all know that these are only what people say, that in reality, purchasing value, energy of a word and contents of a book do not exist, that by these conceptions we only donate a series of phenomena in some way linked with coin, word, book, but in substance, quite separate from them. But is it so? We decided to accept nothing as given. Consequently, we shall not negate anything as given. We see in things, in addition to what is external, something internal. We know that this internal element in things constitutes a continuous part of things, usually their principal substance. And quite naturally we ask ourselves, where is the internal element, and what does it represent in and by itself? We see that it is not embraced within our space. We begin to conceive of an idea of a higher space possessing more dimensions than ours. Our space then appears to be somehow a part of a higher space, i.e. we begin to believe that we know, feel and measure only part of space, that part which is measurable in terms of length, width and height. As was said before, we usually regard space as a form of the universe, or as a form of the matter of the universe. To make this clear, it is possible to say that a cube is the form of the matter in a cube. A sphere is the form of the matter in a sphere. Space, an infinite sphere, is the form of the entire matter of the universe. H.P. Blavatsky, in The Secret Doctrine, has this to say about space, and Dispensky quotes, The superficial absurdity of assuming that space itself is measurable in any direction is of little consequence. The familiar phrase, the fourth dimension of space, can only be an abbreviation of the fuller form, the fourth dimension of matter in space. The progress of evolution may be destined to introduce us to new characteristics of matter. And Aspinsky's asterisk this: The Secret Doctrine, The Theosophical Publishing Society, 3rd edition, pages 271, volume 1. And Espensky continues, But the formula defining space as the form of matter in the universe suffers from this deficiency, that there is introduced in it a concept of matter, i.e. the unknown. I've already spoken of that dead-end siding, X equals Y, Y equals X, to which all attempts at the physical definition of matter inevitably lead. Psychological definitions lead to the same thing. In a well-known book, The Psychology of the Soul, A.I. Gerzen says, and Dyspensky quotes once more, we call matter everything which directly or indirectly offers resistance to motion, directly or indirectly produced by us, manifesting a remarkable analogy with our passive states. And we call force, motion, that which directly or indirectly communicates movement to us or to other bodies, thus manifesting the greatest similitude to our active states. And Spensky continues, Consequently, matter and motion are something like projections of our active and passive states, It is clear that it is possible to define the passive state only in terms of the active and the active in terms of the passive, again two unknowns defining one another. E. Douglas Fawcett in an article entitled Idealism and the Problem of Nature in The Quest, April 1910, discusses matter from this point of view, and Despensky quotes, Matter, like force, does not give us any trouble. We know all about it for the very good reason that we invented it. By matter, we think of sensuous objects. It is mental change of concrete, but too complicated facts, which are difficult to deal with. Strictly speaking, matter exists only as a concept. Truth to tell, the character of matter, even when treated only as a conception, is so unobvious that the majority of persons are unable to tell us exactly what they mean by it. And Duspensky continues, An important fact is here brought to light. Matter and force are just logical concepts, i.e. only words accepted for the designation of a lengthy series of complicated facts. It is difficult for us, educated almost exclusively along physical lines, to understand this clearly, but in substance it may be stated as follows. Who has seen matter and force, and when? We see things, see phenomena. Matter, independently of the substance from which a given thing is made, or of which it consists, we have never seen and never will see. But the given substance is not quite matter. This is wood or iron or stone. Similarly, we shall never see force separately from motion. What does this mean? It means that matter and force are just such abstract conceptions as value and labour, as the purchasing value of a coin or the contents of a book. It means that matter is such stuff as dreams are made of, And because we can never touch this stuff and can never see it only in dreams, so we can never touch physical matter, nor see, nor hear, nor photograph it separately from the object. We cognize things and phenomena which are bad or good, but we never cognize matter and force separately from the things and phenomena. Matter is much an abstract conception as a truth, good and evil. It is as impossible to put matter or any part of matter into a chemical retort or crucible, as it is impossible to sell Egyptian darkness in vials. However, as it is said that Egyptian darkness is sold as a black powder in Athos, therefore perhaps even matter somewhere, by someone, has been seen. This is irony which the English-speaking may easily fail to understand. Some unscrupulous monks of the Monastery of Athos, famous throughout Greece and Russia, made a practice, it is said, of selling Egyptian darkness in little vials, Thus making capital out of the credulity and piety of the illiterate Russian pilgrims who will want to visit this monastery in great numbers. So that's the end of the asterisk. In order to discuss questions of this order, a certain preparation is necessary, or a high degree of intuition, but unfortunately it is customary to consider the fundamental questions of cosmology very lightly. A man easily admits his incompetency in music, dancing or higher mathematics, but he always maintains the privilege of having an opinion and being a judge of questions relating to first principles. It is difficult to discuss with such men, for how will you answer a man who looks at you in perplexity, knocks on the table with his finger and says, This is matter. I know it. Feel. How can it be an abstract conception? To answer this, it is as difficult as to answer the man who says, I see that the sun rises and sets. Returning to the consideration of space, we shall under no circumstances introduce unknown quantities in definition of it. We shall define it only in terms of those two data which we decided to accept at the very beginning, the world and consciousness of facts which we decided to recognise as existing. By the world, we mean the combination of unknown causes of our sensations. By the material world, we mean the combination of unknown causes of a definite series of sensations those of sight, hearing, touch, smell, taste, sensations of weight, and so on. Space is either a property of the world or a property of our knowledge of the world. Three-dimensional space is either a property of the material world or a property of our receptivity of the material world. Our inquiry is confined to the problem. How shall we approach the study of space? And this is the end of chapter two.